Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. My thanks to this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants, Pershaw, in Worcestershire. Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook. Here to exchange news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and uh, hopefully answer some of your gardening quandaries. We've had some uh, lovely weather for late October and now I stand at the bedroom window looking out on steady rain and really quite a pretty autumn scene. The beach hedge just starting to change colour. There's plumes on the compact pampas grass I've got a couple of pots of uh, golden privet, ligustrum. Very useful they are. I dot them about when there are gaps in the border. Most spectacular are the hostas. We tend to forget that at this time of the year, just as they start to fade, the leaves go the most brilliant yellow, a lovely colour. The holly's got masses of berries. You know what they say about a lot of berries means a hard winter. I'm not so sure about that. It usually means that uh, when the hollies are in flower, the weather is good for pollination. Lawn, too, is pretty green, although not for much longer because uh, on Friday, the fellows are coming with uh, heavy aeration and scarifying machines, so they're going to tear that up. There's two or three patches of pretty coarse grass getting established and a good scarifying should work wonders. I rather hope, I've got two days before they come, that the surface dries a bit. But at least last weekend with that lovely weather, I was able to get it all cut and edged so it looks nice and tidy. This week I'm pleased to say that we have a return visit from environmentalist and former colleague Chris Baines, who I spoke to two weeks ago. Firstly, uh, Chris, thanks for coming back to the podcast. We really enjoyed the last interview, which uh, people might like to go back a few weeks to hear. But this week, uh, we're getting in touch with you again because uh, you've made a film. Congratulations on that. I understand it's already been a very successful film at film festivals. Can you tell us a bit about it? The film's called The Living Thames. It's basically a one-hour film which has me wandering down the River Thames from Richmond all the way out, effectively out to the sea. The film finishes with me sailing off into the sunset on a cockle-fishing boat from, from Leon Sea, which is your neck of the woods, isn't it, down in Essex? 
Um, it is indeed Essex man and proud of it, yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> no white socks. <laughs> oh, what a shame. The film basically is a celebration, I suppose, of, of all of the different people and organisations that have a hand in making the River Thames and the Thames estuary uh, the river it is. And you would know that certainly 70 years ago, it was regarded as biologically dead. It was so heavily polluted, it stank, nothing lived there. And now it's reputed to be the cleanest, healthiest estuary in Europe. So that's been, that's been a 70-year miracle, really. And just as a measure of how extraordinary the wildlife now is... There are something like a couple of hundred different species of fish found in the Thames, and 70 years ago there were none. But most amazingly, from my perspective anyway, there are harbour porpoises that live in the water around the House of Commons. Although people don't necessarily see all of that wildlife, it's there. And it's there because of a combination of nature conservation organisations, the water companies, the Environment Agency, a whole lot of different people who've had a hand in it. Some of them are passionate about rowing or archaeology. There's a wonderful group of guys who, who maintain the old steam pumping station down in Erith, built by Bazaljet to pump the sewage out of the pipes and back into the estuary 150 years ago. And all of these people come across as just having a great passion for this great tidal river. And I gather the film was a bit of a passion project, wasn't it? We funded the whole film through crowdsourcing and sponsorship. When I was first asked to do it, I said, well, who's commissioned it then? Is it BBC or ITV or is it going on, you know, where's it going to be screened? And there's a kind of laughing at the other end of the phone and they said, it doesn't work that way anymore. Um, nobody's commissioned it, but if we make it, we're convinced that people will want to see it. And so it was a kind of wing and a prayer, really, initially. Well, it sounds like your prayers were answered, because I understand the film has done very well, hasn't it? It's been extraordinary. Last year, it was entered for the UK Charity Film Awards. I went along to the awards ceremony thinking, well, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. And we sat there at our table and I went because I thought the team needed a bit of support, you know, and we sat there and they went through the runners-up and the long list and the short list and all the rest of it. And then, unbelievably, our film won. <laughs> and I was just absolutely astonished. And since then, it's been entered for film festivals literally all around the world. So about once a fortnight, I get another email to say, oh, we've just won a prize in India. Or we've just won a prize in Bolivia or in California. So this film, which has never been seen on television, is actually doing an extraordinary job of raising the profile of the Thames and this fantastic resource in Britain. And I've just been amazed by that. That, that it can have that kind of reach. What do you really hope to achieve with this film? I mean, it's achieved a lot already, but did you have an objective in mind? I think the main objective really was to uh, alert people generally to uh, the magic of the Thames estuary. So that's already happening. I think people who watch the film are astonished by the number of people involved, the diversity of it, the wildlife. But one of the things that's been really interesting in this international aspect of it, it, it was in, it was in a, f a festival uh, celebrating 
holy rivers, unbelievably. And so the Ganges and various other rivers were celebrated. And the Thames has a long, long tradition uh, as a, a river of sacrifice, for instance. So I think hopefully what we are communicating is that if you can pull together a really energetic working partnership of all the different interest groups, then actually that might be a key to solving some of the problems of the world's other great rivers, like the Ganges and the Indus. You know, I mean, some of the rivers around the world are in a terrible state, and so was the Thames only 70 years ago. So our hope is that the Thames can be just a bit of a flagship project for many of the other rivers around the world that are washing plastics down into the ocean and all the rest of it. And I think that, more than anything else, is probably why David Attenborough has been so supportive of the whole thing from the beginning, because the rivers are at the heart of every great urban city, but they're also the key to so much of the downstream pollution that's damaging the oceans. And the Thames is just a brilliant good news story. I think you did a great job on the film, Chris but you're not the only noteworthy presenter <laughs> on screen, are you? One of the, I think one of the real keys to its success has been that we managed to persuade Sir David Attenborough to just do a, a very short introduction. He lives in Richmond, so the Thames is on his doorstep. I've worked with him for 40 years, I suppose. We were both involved with the British Wildlife Appeal back in the 1980s. So I've known him for a long time. Um, but I didn't have the nerve to ask him. One of my team in the, in the Thames Estuary Partnership, being much more naive than me, just apparently rang him up or wrote to him, and, and he said yes. <laughs> Amazing. And so having Sir David Attenborough as the kind of warm-up act has just been a fantastic benefit. Uh, I mean, and this was all, we filmed it two years ago, I think. So before he really changed gear and became much more energetic about campaigning. And, and so that's been a key part of the secret. No, obviously nobody in India has ever heard of me, but they have heard of David Attenborough. And so that gets us onto the agenda. And once it's on there, then people begin to watch it. It's extraordinary. It is an amazing, amazing story. A thing that struck me, I think, having come originally from an agricultural background, is that uh, so close to Piccadilly Circus, you have cows grazing. Yeah, yeah. The Thames is a fantastic resource. And uh, I mean, as I say right at the beginning of the film, I think most people who see it every day or even, you know, once in a lifetime have no idea about it, really. They look over the bridge and it's dirty and brown and they think it must be polluted. But that's just that's just the silt that washes down any natural river. The thing that I think has been a real eye-opener for me is the whole fish story in the Thames. The Thames estuary is the most important Dover sole fishery in Europe. So there's a commercial fishery at the mouth of the Thames and it has to compete with Dubai ports and their huge container ships and all of the cross-channel liners and all the rest of it. And so managing to kind of combine all of those things and bring back the salmon, bring back the seals, bring back the porpoises has just been an extraordinary achievement. And it continues and it's getting better rather than worse, which is, which is also pretty extraordinary in this day and age. Chris, what an amazing story. A remarkable film too. Goodness, Chris, how things have changed 
I can't think that when you and I first met that somebody would set out to record something without having it fully commissioned and probably haven't taken two years to get the commission. Yeah, absolutely right. The first really significant thing I did was um, a programme called Blue Tits and Bumblebees. I tried for about a year to get that commissioned. I wanted a six-part series, and this was about a garden that I'd moved to that I was going to do a complete makeover on, starting with the kind of close-crop lawn that was there and creating a pond and doing all the rest of it. And I just got rejection after rejection after rejection. And then eventually a producer got in touch with me from a a bit of the BBC called Continuing Education, which was a kind of uh, a little ghetto in the BBC with no budget but more imagination than most, I guess. And he said you'll never get a six-part series for this. He said, it's such an act of faith. You're starting out with a blank canvas and we have to believe that 12 months down the line you'll have frogs and dragonflies and wildflowers. He said, but I think I could probably get a one-hour programme. And that's what they commissioned. And sure enough, we filmed for a year and I dug my pond and I planted my hedge and I um, sowed my cowslips and all the rest of it. And it went out at something like 11.30 on a Sunday night. And (laughs) there was an absolute avalanche of response from the people who watched it. Um, But the struggle to get it on the TV was huge. So that world has changed out of all recognition now. Uh, And the other thing that's changed completely, I think, is that when I was starting out 40-odd years ago, everything was on film. (laughs) Yes. And so film was incredibly expensive. Uh, I made a whole a series called The Ark, which had me and three young children on a narrow boat travelling around the country investigating environmental issues like nuclear waste and pesticides and a whole range of other things. And we had to actually rehearse all the interviews because nobody could afford just to switch the camera on and hope for the best in the way that you and I are hoping for the best with this conversation. I mean, <laughs> you couldn't afford the luxury of that. And so the idea that you would, they would say, right, we want a one-and-a-half-minute interview here, and you had to rehearse it and film it for one-and-a-half minutes. And then one day I arrived, I was presenting Countryfile by, by the time this happened, and the film crew said, oh, we've got to use something called video. And, and I said, oh. And they said, oh, it'll never be the same. We'll never get the quality, <laughs> you know. The, 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 the atmosphere of film is so special and all the rest of it. And they were all really aspiring uh, Hollywood film <laughs> men, really, I guess, and women. Uh, and I, I thought, this is fantastic, Video is fantastic because if you're doing an interview on video and somebody doesn't give you quite the answer you wanted, then you can just come round to the question again and and you can just let it run. Of course, it transformed the lives of the editors because they suddenly had hours of rambling by Chris Baines talking to people, but it meant that from an interviewer's point of view, it was just a complete revolution. And the other thing that was very striking was that Working on film, you were really very restricted with light levels. So huge, elaborate lighting processes and all the rest of it. And I remember one of the very first um, items I did on video for Countryfile, I think, was about a, a bat colony. Now, you couldn't do that on film because you would have to light it 
And if you put lots of floodlights into the bat colony, then obviously you screwed up the bat colony. But with video, they could. The, the cameraman was astonished. He said, "God," he said, "I can go in here, and I can just adjust the camera, and I can see the bats." And so, in all kinds of ways, that whole technological aspect of making television has been absolutely transformed in our working lives. And you just know it's going to get better and better and better, I guess. Well, you know, my arrival at Pebble Mill at One was not only video, but of course it was live. And at one stage I was told that uh, once they say go, you know, you get the downstroke from the floor manager, it's in your hands. And if you wish, you can forget everything that the producer and director said and just do it your way. And as long as you get it right and everybody likes it, you're fine. <laughs> if you don't get it right, then you're not there next week. <laughs> I, I had a little wildlife gardening strand on Pebble Mill. I remember on one occasion standing out freezing cold in the garden, putting a bird table together or something, and the message came through, you know, you're on in five seconds and you've got three and a half minutes. And then as I started, about half a minute in, they said, sorry, you've only got a minute. <laughs> and then about 15 seconds later, another message through the UFO saying, oh, we're back to two and a half minutes. And you're actually live on television looking at the camera and trying to give the sense that nothing is happening in your earphone when, in fact, your whole world is being turned upside down every few seconds. So that was a heck of a... A learning process, certainly. But I loved it. And Pebble Mill at One, for anybody who still remembers it, was an extraordinary programme, five days a week, of the most amazing international musicians and this constant stream of, you know, world-class people passing through the studio at Pebble Mill. You know, it was uh, an extraordinary place to be as a, as a gardener. <laughs> you, you mentioned gardening. We started in September with that programme when all the normal gardening programmes were going off air and then we stayed on air from September to May and when things started to grow in May, we came off air again, <laughs> right through the winter. Yeah, well, obviously, the production side of television rarely knows anything about the content of what people like you and me are trying to tell them. So only a producer could think that you could start um, a seasonal programme about gardening in September and run it through to February and end it. I mean, it's, uh, it's absolutely <laughs> Chris, it's classic, great to speak it? to you, but if we could just revert back to the film, uh, and if I could once again congratulate you on it, but could you just remind our listeners what it's called and how they can find it? It's called The Living Thames. The simplest way to find it is either to go on Amazon and just put in the Living Thames film and it will come up, or look for the Thames Estuary Partnership. And the Thames Estuary Partnership is the charity that made the film. Their website has a link. It's really that easy. And, and I hope that people who know and love London but have friends around the world might think to just send them the link because already I'm getting messages back from friends in the States saying they've just found this thing on Amazon and watched it and they can't believe it kind of thing. So that whole worldwide networking of something as simple as, as a, a, a one-hour walk down the Thames is, is just magic for me, I think. Chris, thank you very much indeed and our heartiest congratulations. Great work from a great man. Thank you. Thanks, Peter. Great to talk to you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As to the diary, I've been out and about. Went down to Cornwall and visited Kernock Nurseries. That's really a very well-known nursery to those people buying rooted cuttings of all kinds of shrubs and perennials. It's an interesting nursery because it's perched on a hillside facing south so it gets good light, but they have to terrace every stretch before they can build a greenhouse. It costs more to do the terracing than it does to build the greenhouse. And just to one side, best part of an acre I would think is stacked with uh, tree trunks because the uh, nursery doesn't use fossil fuels these metre or metre and a half long logs are just fed into a chipper the chips go into the boiler and that heats the uh, eight acres of glass it was a very impressive visit and I saw a number of uh, new plants to be uh, introduced in the next year or two other people who uh, propagate and distribute the uh, Wollemi pine it was uh, found in Australia in uh, the late 1990s Prior to that, it was only known as a, a fossil tree. Very interesting because the male flowers, the male cones, come on the tip of branches, lower down the tree, and the female cones look almost like sweet chestnuts, are higher up the tree, uh, apparently so that um, pollen has to blow from other trees to cross-pollinate to set seed. On the return, I called in to see uh, Wetmans, the famous Pink's nursery at Dawlish in Devon. And their nursery is the reverse, not on a hillside, but down in a valley. And a stream runs right the way through it. If you stand on the bridge, walking from one glass house to the other, apparently in the summer you can see trout swimming. I saw watercress growing on the side, but uh, one's a bit uneasy now about going foraging for watercress because you're not quite sure what's upstream in, in the water. Good time perhaps to... Uh, suggests that people buy a bunch of watercress, snap off a few pieces and uh, just pop it in a, a glass or jar of water and it will root in no time. You can pot it up and it's a very good provider of salads through the winter. doesn't need running water. As long as you keep the compost nice and damp, you'll have some really nice salad to pick fresh. What's on the question front? Well, uh, Anthony phoned to uh, ask about pruning back a big hebe shrub that flowers for months. Apparently it's getting a, a bit overgrown. I wanted to know whether it was uh, small-leaved, which tend to be much hardier, 
or large leaved which usually have bigger flowers but can be knocked out in a hard winter and after discussion we came to the conclusion it was best to wait until March, April because if the weather was tough and knocked some of it back then the dead could be pruned out and I suggested that he look towards the back of the shrub and cut two or three branches right out and then watch them and if they broke and produced new growth then he could do more pruning closer to uh, the facing out into the garden. I had another query too about bags of fresh horse manure. Uh, without doubt, uh, if you know somebody that has horses and collects the manure from uh, the grazing areas, much better to compost that. Don't use it fresh. And if you can mix it in with the other green waste, so much the better. My tailpiece... Well, to thought for the day, a quote from Henry Youngman. A bird in the hand is useless when you want to blow your nose. (laughs) Cold weather coming, I'll have that in mind. My thanks to this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants of Pershore in Worcestershire. To my producer, and of course to you for listening. Hope to catch up with you again next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.